Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Janine's presentation, A Data-Driven Public Policy, An Actuarial Journey in Maternal Health. Um, welcome. I'm Alison Visser from Guardian Actuarial. I'm chairing today. Uh, I think this is a really interesting topic, and I think you'll all enjoy it. I'll just let you know a little bit about Janine. Janine is a lecturer in actuarial studies at the ANU. She teaches the actuarial control cycle and advanced general insurance to postgrad students. Her research interests are in public health, public policy and human services. With the aim of applying actuarial techniques, techniques to these areas to provide better policy solutions to complex problems and ultimately produce better outcomes for all those affected. Janine completed her PhD on the risk factors of government-funded maternal healthcare costs in Australia with a focus on women who experience adverse birth outcomes. She also does consulting work in human services for public sector departments. And prior to joining the university, Janine spent nine years working in various actuarial roles in the general insurance and investment advisory industry in Australia and also in the UK. So, Please all join me in welcoming Janine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alison. Um, so as Alison said, uh, today I am going to take you on a journey. It's a journey in maternal health. It also happens to be the journey of my PhD, which I completed last year. It did take me three or four years to write that PhD, but I have condensed it into about 30 minutes today. So plenty of time for questions at the end. So let's start at the beginning. It is a story of conception, a conception of a PhD, but also conception of my second daughter whom I fell pregnant with a month after I enrolled in the PhD program. So that was um, very fun and interesting times. But let me take a step back. Uh, once upon a time, I was a general insurance actuary. I was working in London in a commercial pricing team doing lots of cool stuff over there, travelling and having a jolly old time. Uh, and then my husband and I um, fell pregnant with our first daughter and we decided to come back home and Canberra's home for us. Um, it was also a good time for me to take stock um, and reflect on the things that I'd done in my career up until that point, which was predominantly in general insurance. And I um, really wanted to do something quite different, so something pretty radically different, and this was um, my first step in, in towards that. Um, so over the next five years, I had two kids that mainly stayed at home and looked after them, and I, and I wrote this PhD. Uh, so the title of my PhD is The Maternal Health System Costs of Adverse Birth Outcomes. Uh, and I often get asked, why? Um, why, do you, why did you choose maternal health? It's so different to what you've done before. Uh, and for me, it was very simple. It's because it matters. Um, it matters to me, it also matters to women who have had adverse birth outcomes. Um, it matters to these families, to society. Uh, it also matters to policymakers and governments and the World Health Organization. So the first report that I actually read in this area was by the World Health Organization. It was called Born Too Soon. It was published in 2012. And it was about the global public health problem of premature birth. And they find that premature birth rates are increasing in most countries and it also reflects the leading cause of death for newborns. 
Prem births are also on the rise in Australia. So when I read this report, it's, it's quite a confronting read. It obviously had a profound impact on what I was going to do for the next few years. Um, but I was really surprised that this was still such a big issue. Uh, so the report was a real call for action to get more researchers involved in this area, um, including people like me um, that had, you know, quite technical backgrounds. So meanwhile, back in Australia, had a closer look at what was going on here. 9% of births um, in Australia are premature, and we spend $3.4 billion on government-funded um, maternal hospital costs. So this is costs from the perspective of government, that's their expenditure, just on women um, who go to hospital for maternal conditions, so things like having a baby. Um, the main cost here is actually just going to the hospital to have your baby. And that $3.4 billion represents about 92% of the expenditure in um, maternal health. The rest is largely out of hospital. So out of hospital services are things like your GP and specialist visits, blood tests and scans, um, so quite different to the hospital space. So in terms of what I look at, I focus very much on the cost of government, so what the government pays out. Um, I look, so that means I exclude private expenses and I exclude out-of-pocket costs as well. So it's only what the government's paying out, so public patients for hospital costs um, and Medicare for out-of-hospital. And I also exclude infant costs. And I, I'm often asked, um, why? Why do you exclude infant costs? And if you were at uh, Audit's um, pl plenary yesterday, you would have seen some of the stories with newborns. And, and they are costly, but there's actually been um, a lot of work in that space already. There's actually been virtually nothing done on the costs of women who are having adverse birth outcomes, and even just the costs of women, um, generally speaking. Uh, so. In order to do this, this work, I got in touch with two experts in the area. They were based at the University of Newcastle. Um, one lady over there has been doing this type of thing for over 30 years, um, and she's the one that suggested, given my background in insurance cost modelling, given I was in insurance and particularly in pricing, she, she, she suggested that I do something like that um, in this area. And they were very open to working with me. They have psychology and public health backgrounds, very different to me. Um, but very open to collaborating, and they ended up being my supervisors. I also had a supervisor based at the ANU where I did my PhD, who was a statistician, um, and a health economist was involved at, at one point as well. So there was a, a real mix of skills, and I think it really helped in terms of solving some of the problems that we identified during the course of my PhD. So I'm going to take you through three questions today. They're the three main aims of my thesis. The first one looks at cost differentials, what I've called cost differentials. So that looks at um, whether women, so what are the differences in costs between women who had adverse birth outcomes and those that didn't. And when I say adverse birth outcomes, I didn't just limit, to, limit it to premature births. I also looked at stillbirths, which are deaths, um, fetal deaths. I also looked at neonatal deaths, so that's deaths in the first 28 days of life, congenital conditions, and low birth weight babies, so small babies. The second question actually takes a step back from the whole adverse birth question and just looks at modelling cost overall. So um, you might have already twigged to something that we do in general insurance. When we do a pricing review, this is essentially what we're doing. I've labelled it cost risk factors, so it's basically saying what are the drivers of the maternal health cost. I looked at the hospital costs 
separately to the out-of-hospital costs. And again, I'm looking at this um, from the perspective of government. When we do it in GI, we call these things rating factors because they have a significant impact on the general insurance cost. And we look at frequency and severity separately. We separate small and large and all of that. I applied all of those principles to this problem as well. And the third question, which is the bit I'm really passionate about and the bit that I spend most of my time on now, this is the bit that's actually really hard. It's how do we actually inform health policy? What do we do with all of this? So you do all this technical modelling. You have all this evidence now. How do we transform that into practical public policy? So let me just bring this to life a little bit. We've got two women here. Lucy on your left and Grace on your right. I'll let you read through the characteristics of these women. They are quite different. Um, but the main thing I want to draw out of this is that Lucy has an adverse birth. She had a premature birth um, and she had a caesarean delivery. Uh, Grace, on the other hand, didn't have an adverse birth and she had a vaginal delivery. Now, this is just an example. I don't have photos in my data. I don't know their names. It's all confidential and de-identified. Um, but just to give you an example of the types of things that might happen in their perinatal period. So this is the time frame that I looked at for assessing costs. And I actually broke it down into three separate sub-periods with the idea that the cost risk factors are going to vary across those sub-periods. So the first one is the antenatal period. Okay, so that's the period of pregnancy. And the types of things that could happen to someone like Lucy is that she's hospitalised during pregnancy. She did have diabetes as well. Um, or she could have been diagnosed with preeclampsia or both. And that's a high-risk condition in pregnancy. During delivery, her baby's born prematurely, but through caesarean delivery. And postnatally, she's diagnosed with postnatal depression. For the postnatal period, I looked at the one-year period following the birth of the baby. For delivery, I actually included labour. So I look at the days leading up to the birth of the baby as well. Grace, on the other hand, has a very smooth antenatal period. Her baby's born healthy at term for the delivery period, and postnatally, she's still diagnosed with postnatal anxiety. So this, this is just an example of major events. There are obviously other events that happen during the perinatal period, like seeing your GP or obstetrician for standard antenatal care, but I've just picked out the major events here. So that already brings me to the middle of my PhD journey. So the middle was all about data and all about modelling, which is very exciting for actuaries, so I'll take you through exactly what I did. Um, the data set that I use is uh, wonderful. It has um, lots and lots of information. So it's the Australian Longitudinal Study for Women's Health, which is actually a survey. It's run every three or four years, and it's been going on for over 20 years. So there was a real depth to the information that I had on all of these women. There are questions in there on their physical and mental health, on socio-demographic factors, on lifestyle factors, on um, health service use, so I knew you could tell how often they were seeing GPs. I knew whether they had anxiety or depression. I could tell um, whether there was any childhood abuse or intimate partner violence, whether they had allergies, diabetes, all sorts of things. But the real strength of the data set that I could use was the linkage with government administrative data sets. So for the hospital study, I only had New South Wales data that I could do this linkage with. Um, and my survey data is linked with uh, the New South Wales admitted patients data collection. So if anyone here works in health, you'll be familiar with this data set. It's the data set that records every episode of care of every admitted patient. 
Uh, I was also able to link it up with the New South Wales perinatal data collection, which is um, the data collection for every birth in this country. So if anyone's had a baby here, the midwife will take down all this information. It goes into their iPads these days. That goes to the perinatal data collection. So there's lots of information there about the baby, about the gestational age of the baby, about the birth weight of the baby, and this helps me identify whether there's an adverse birth outcome or not. And there are another of other data sets that I used to identify some of the other adverse birth outcomes as well. For the out-of-hospital study, the linkage was a lot more straightforward. So again, it was the AUSH survey data, but it was directly to Medicare data because we're talking about out-of-hospital services here. So in terms of the cost, the definition of cost, I'm talking about the Medicare rebate that's paid to these women um, when they use a service that's covered through Medicare. And Medicare data has that information. It's very accurate, actually, because it comes directly from a payments processing system. So that's how I define cost for the out-of-hospital study, the rebate that's paid by the government. For the hospital study, I'm talking about public patients here. I use the methodology that's typically used by health economists in this area. They use a thing called the ARDRG code, um, which is essentially a group of services, a group of hospital services, and the Independent Hospital Pricing Authority um, actually allocate costs to those DRG codes, those ARDRG codes. So I was able to use the work that, that they already do um, and apply that over to, to the women in my data set. In terms of the data linkage, I could talk about it for the rest of the day probably. It's, it's fairly complex, but if you've ever done a pricing exercise again for GI and you've looked at linking claims to exposures, getting things in the right time periods and the right time values of money, it's exactly the same kind of principle where I'm talking about linking um, the costs of these, of, of the, the, the costs of um, the publicly funded um, healthcare costs back to the women. Um, so the exposures for me are the women and the babies. Okay, so I'm just linking costs back to women, just like we do in insurance. So in terms of the actual stats, we use a two-phase modelling methodology. So first we just do exploratory analysis like you do in any statistical analysis. The only thing I wanted to highlight from that is that I used regression trees. And the main reason I used regression trees is because I had hundreds of factors that I could test in my GLM. I couldn't throw them all in in one go. There was far too many. Um, regression trees were a really good way of narrowing down the number of factors that were important enough to then go and check in formal parametric models like GLMs and GLMMs. And I did have a, uh, my main supervisor was a statistician, so he was able to help me a lot with this part. Uh, although I had done most of it before when I was doing GI pricing. Again, very similar principles that I was able to transfer over. And I'll show you some examples of that now. So we'll dive right into the results of the hospital study. So the first thing I looked at, or the first thing I'll show you, I looked at lots of things, but I've only been able to bring a few things here today, is the cost differentials. So this looks at the average cost of women who have adverse births, and you see that it is consistently higher than women who don't have adverse births. Overall, the cost differential is 23%. And that answers the first question that I described earlier. Regression trees. So this is what a regression tree looks like when you put it in a picture. Uh, and if you haven't used regression trees before, basically what it's doing is it's splitting your data into different groups based on the most important factors. So the regression tree here shows you that overall the average cost is around $7,000 for a public patient. 
But mode of delivery is the most important factor to split that data. And if you have a caesarean delivery, you cost a lot more than a woman who doesn't have a caesarean delivery. And you can see the costs there. So a woman who has a caesarean delivery is about 12, costs about $12,000. Um, and one that doesn't, come, it, the cost comes right down. Um, the beauty of the regression tree is that it goes on and it keeps splitting. So what you see is for a woman who has a caesarean delivery, the next most, most important factor to split your data is the birth weight of the baby. So if a woman has a caesarean delivery and a small baby, she costs more uh, than a woman who has a larger baby. And so on. You can keep splitting your data. So the main purpose of this for me was to use those factors that the regression tree has identified and then put them and test them in a GLM setting. So I'll show you the results of the GLM now. So we're going to bring back Lucy and Grace. Um, I should have mentioned as well, I'm focusing here on the delivery period results because when we talk about hospital costs, over 80% of the cost is incurred just in that delivery period. So it's really about going to the hospital and having the baby. That's driving most of the cost. Uh, so let's look at how much Lucy costs. So Lucy costs 250% more than Grace, so that's the big headline number. It's a bit shocking, so let's break it down a little bit. The main driver of cost here is mode of delivery. So Lucy costs 96% more than a woman who has a vaginal delivery. So like we saw in the regression tree, the type of delivery is really the main driver of cost, um, which isn't particularly surprising because we know how much cesarean deliveries cost compared to a vaginal delivery. Right, the next most um, important or significant factor was diabetes, and it has a cost differential of 12%. Again, not that, significant, uh, not that surprising, given we know diabetes is quite problematic um, for, for childbirth and also for pregnancy. So I also find adverse birth outcomes is statistically significant. So what this means is that a woman who has an adverse birth outcome costs 8% more than another woman, but... This now takes into account all these other factors, as opposed to what I was doing before, which just looked at it one way. The differential comes right down to 8%. It was about 23% before. But what we're saying is adverse birth outcomes are statistically significant, even in the presence of all these other factors. So the whole point here is that we're looking at this multivariately. And what I noticed, again, for me, this was a fairly new area. Um, there wasn't a lot of work that was being done multivariately or multifactorially like, like I've done it here. Um, so that was really useful for the people that I was working with to see that. This is an interesting one. Um, so we find that there is a group of women who are public patients, that, but they have private health insurance, so they opt to go public, and that happens. Um, but that group of women, they cost more um, than the women who don't have private health insurance. So this is a finding we're looking into in a lot more detail now. It could just be because they were in poorer health to start with, but we don't know yet, so we're, we're looking at that in more detail. And the last two factors are around area and smoking. So we find that if a woman uh, lives in the city, she costs more than a woman who doesn't, who lives in a more rural area. And the main reason we think for that is there's just more access to services in cities. Okay, so they're using more services because they have more access. And finally, we find that a woman who smokes um, costs more than a woman who doesn't. And that intuitively makes sense as well. So I tested about 50 factors. I looked at all kinds of demographic factors as well, so like socioeconomic status, income, education, different types of health conditions as well. But these were the six factors um, that were driving costs. These were my cost risk factors. And as you can see, the main one is mode of delivery. So that's it for the hospital study. I'll move on to the out-of-hospital study. The results are quite different. Um, for this, 
we'll start again with the time trends. Um, fairly straightforward, similar to before. The cost differential overall is 27%. What's interesting is the steep increase in costs from around 2003 onwards. Um, again, uh, there was a number of things that happened during this time that, that caused that increase. One of the major things that happened was a strengthening Medicare package that was introduced around that time, and it had a significant impact on perinatal services. So just one example of that, of that is the planning and pregnancy management fee. If anyone's gone private, you would have paid a lot of money to your obstetrician halfway through your pregnancy if you, if you had your baby after 2004 but you would have also got a decent rebate back from the government for that fee. So prior to 2004, that was actually an out-of-pocket expense. It wasn't covered under Medicare. Uh, and what happened after they introduced it into Medicare is obstetricians hiked up their fees. So the government also gave bigger rebates. Um, and there's a number of other things that happened during that time, but you can see the costs went up quite significantly. When I just model overall costs here, I find distributions are pretty distorted. Um, and those sorts of effects swamp the effects of everything else. So I actually pull them out and model them separately as large, and I just look at underlying costs um, on its own. So I'm going to show you the results of the underlying costs today. I know there's a lot of information here. I won't probably have time to go through all of it, but I'll pick out a few things. So these, these are the results of the GLMs for the um, out-of-hospital models. I look at antenatal and postnatal only here because the delivery period, as I said before, is mainly a hospital cost. There's not a lot to say about the delivery period for the out-of-hospital space. I also split into public and private. Now, the way that I've identified private here is whether a woman has private health insurance or not. We're still talking about a rebate from the government. So if a woman has private health insurance, she might still be seeing an obstetrician during her antenatal care, and she's getting rebates back from Medicare for that she's probably not getting a lot back from a private health insurance until she actually has her baby in a private hospital. So that's the distinction there between public and private. And the idea, again, was that the risk factors would vary by public and private, and they do in some cases, not so much postnatally. They're fairly consistent for both public and private. So we find here that IVF is actually the most, um, the, has the biggest impact antenatally, and this is actually after they've gone through and, and they're pregnant. So even after a woman who's gone through IVF has become pregnant, she, she is more costly, possibly in terms of increased care needs during the pregnancy. Specialist use is only significant um, for the private models. Uh, GP use is significant across the board. I'll come back to the mental health stuff. Area is um, significant in the same way that we saw for the hospital study. And adverse births is an interesting one. I also break down my um, postnatal period into shorter term intervals. So this gives you a one year period, but I also look at it every um, two months as well. And what you see is that adverse births is significant for the whole 12 month period for the public model, but only for a shorter term period for the private model. So what we conclude with this is that adverse births are a statistically significant cost risk factor, but only in the delivery period and in the postnatal period, long-term for public, but only short-term for private. And we're looking into the reasons for that now as well. But I did want to focus today, or the rest of today anyway, on the mental health factors, because there's so many, and they have a really big impact on cost, particularly postnatally. So if you look at the postnatal factors, you've got anxiety. Um, stress about own health is a question in the survey that asks about whether the woman's stressed about her own health. And unsurprisingly, we have postnatal depression there as well. So the cumulative impact of these factors are very, very big. 
So that brings me to my third aim, or my third question, in terms of how do we actually transform all of this into practical policy. So we actually picked mental health policy to focus on further, uh, not just because it had a big cost impact, but I also had the, the, fortune of, um, the good fortune of having a supervisor who was an expert in this area. She wrote her PhD on the risk factors of postnatal depression. So she'd also already looked at a number of different initiatives, and now we had a, a big evidence base around costs that we could collaborate on and put together. So in terms of the initiatives that we looked at, the first one was around universal and improved screening for mental health in the perinatal period. And the idea being that we can identify high-risk women and we can provide them with appropriate support to reduce that burden of poor mental health. Um, Trojenta there is my, is, is my supervisor. Uh, and she had, so she did her PhD on looking at new risk factors that we could include in the current screening protocols. So at the moment, the current screening is, is fairly straightforward. It's very simple. She found things like sleep disturbance, um, any issues with reproductive health, and even some physical health factors um, were also significant in predicting whether a woman had postnatal depression or not. So the idea here is that we include those factors as well. The second initiative was all about early intervention. Okay, so early intervention is really important in this space. And the reason for that is that a key predictor of poor perinatal mental health is a history of mental health illness. Okay, so we can actually identify these women early, and if we can identify them early, and we're talking about adolescence, we can provide them with appropriate support then so that they're better able to deal with major life events later on, so things like having a baby. Um, and we actually suggest that reallocating these resources might mean that you reduce costs over the life course. Um, because then they don't need to go out and seek really specialist services later on. But I will emphasise that this is really not all about costs. Yes, that's what I spent most of my PhD time on, but really it's about improving the outcomes for these women, regardless of cost. Right, um, so just to give you some very high-level numbers, um, so these are all still works in progress, uh, this is in terms of doing a full cost-benefit analysis, which is the next stage to this work. If we look at the rates of postnatal depression beyond blue, say that it's 15%, some of the numbers from my models show that the average cost per woman, this is just for postnatal depression, is about $115. We've got 308,000 women giving birth per annum, so the cost burden is about 5.3 million. If we can just reduce the postnatal depression rate by 3%, our saving is about 1.1 million. But we do need to do a full cost-benefit analysis, and I'm working with an economist now whose, expert, whose, whose area is cost-benefit analysis, so that work is to come. Um, again, I, I will say it's not just about the cost. Ultimately, what we want to do is improve these outcomes. So that actually brings me to the end. Um, there's actually a lot... Well, it's not really the end. So I'm still working on this. There's a lot of cost-risk factors that were significant, a lot of areas that we could explore further. Caesarean delivery and IVF were two really important factors. There are data gaps with those two things, which the AIHW is addressing, I think, as we speak. Um, I'm focusing more on the interactions between the public and private system and also those mental health initiatives. And I'll just finish up with why I think actuaries should do this work. Well, I think it's clear that it's important. We're talking about women who have had um, adverse birth outcomes, and that can be one of the most traumatic things that they go through. Um, so anything that we can do to help in that space I think is valuable. 
but there is actually a lot that we can do. So I hope I described some of the ways that I was able to transfer the knowledge and skills from my GI pricing days. Um, I think we also contribute um, to this area with our multidisciplinary mindset. As I mentioned, I had lots of people from different areas that I worked with, um, and being able to pick up and learn from them was really useful, but also I think the way that we're trained helps us to do that better. We're always taught to think across disciplines. Um, we also are taught to think big picture and holistically, and that really helped in this area as well. Collaboration is really important. My supervisors would say to me I had a really novel approach to answering this problem. For me, it was very obvious. It was just how we do it, how, we do it, how an actuary would do it. Um, but we, we also need to learn to communicate well with each other, and I think, I, I think it's a, it was a really great collaboration, and we continue to work together. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, the last thing I'll finish with, which, is, which isn't on there, is the need to upskill if, if you are doing work like this. So I am lucky. I'm based at the ANU, so I have pretty easy access to courses in public policy um, and, I, and conferences as well, so I've been able to upskill in that area as well. So that's, in, that's it for me. So I'll throw the floor open for questions, if you've got any. I think you're supposed to use the mic. <laughs> uh, hi, uh, Mike Ashley, KPMG. Um, I was interested in the regression tree that sure. you put up yep. and just was wondering about that birth weight variable. Yep. Is there anything special ar around that cut point of yeah. 1,350 grams? Is, is that a, a definition from a that's medical a definition? Or? That's a really good question that's um, here. Uh, what I did with regression trees is I just put birth weight of baby from the perinatal data collection in there. So the regression tree actually picks the cutoff. So it uses the stats, you know, lots of cool stats behind it, and it says 2.4 kilograms is the point at which that differential occurs. If you actually look at the birth weight that hospitals use when they identify a low birth weight baby, it's slightly higher. It's 2.5 kilograms. Um, and so the, the, it's close. The regression tree picks something slightly different, but it just uses the stats. Deb Jones, uh, Bretton Watson. Um, the lady sitting next to me in the audience uh, uh, said very interesting when you uh, uh, went through those important risk factors. I think it's in the next slide on. Yep. Um, For hospital. She said yep. not age. Yeah, interesting as well. I, I found that fascinating. Um, so age is not a significant risk factor in um, any of the models that I look at. And I do test age very specifically in all of the models that I do, you know, with the idea that it was going to be significant, but actually I don't, no, I don't find it, no. Hi, Angelina yeah. from PwC. That was really good, Johnny. I enjoyed it. Um, my question was, one of the first things you said was this was about um, practical policy making. Yeah. How, how are you able to take this and actually make yeah. change happen? So that's the bit that we're working on now, and we're making inroads into it by starting with these two initiatives. So the first one is just about trying to get better screening. Um, the second one is about early intervention. To be honest, it's hard. Um, you have to really know the right people, I think. Um, and luckily, the people that I work with at the University of Newcastle know the right people. 
Um, but one of the first things that we have to do, we're, we're told, when we're doing anything in public policy these days, is the cost-benefit analysis. So while I've done a lot of the numbers already, we sort of we need to sit down and put it together. We need to cost up these initiatives as well, so we need to work out how much it actually costs to change these screening protocols, for example. And then we go from there. But that's, that's new territory for me too, so that's what I'm working on now. Any other questions? Jen and Eve, no research? Yep. Uh, Martin Mulcair. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with um, charity leaders from three related charities. Um, you mentioned that whilst your focus has been on costs, you're also very interested in broader maternal health come, outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Have you given much thought to some indicative measures of those, those um, broader maternal health outcomes? Yeah, look, that's a, a really, really good question. And um, I think it kind of even goes back to some of the stuff we heard about in the plenary this morning in terms of mental health. Like, how do we actually diagnose mental health and, and how will we ever get to the point where we actually know um, that whatever initiative we've come up with, we're never going to really directly be able to attribute it back to a reduction in postnatal depression of 3%. You know? So some of the outcomes are things like we won't see as many women struggling with anxiety and depression. Um, but I think very, very difficult to measure. Um, so, I don't, again, sorry, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Um, yeah, the things around cesarean delivery might be easier to measure. The issue we have with cesarean delivery is that act, that's the piece that's missing with the data collection in terms of the outcomes following a cesarean delivery. Are they actually better? Are they worse? Should we be giving these women cesarean delivery or not? And that's the piece, I think, that the AIHW is working on as well. So, yeah, it's a, there's lots of different things, I think, that you can look at with that. And even with IVF, um, are the outcomes better? Is there anything we can do when women have IVF that are going to improve it or, you know, for them? Yeah. Uh, Queenie from Government Actuary. Um, I'm just wondering if you looked at um, whether there's a link between income and uh, postnatal depression and what's your thoughts on government's policy on um, um, <laughs> paid parental leave or maybe you know, what other better alternatives? Um, so I didn't directly look at income and postnatal depression, but my, so Catherine, my colleague that I work with, her work does, and I don't believe she finds a link with income and postnatal depression. She finds other things. Um, in terms of paid um, parental leave, so I don't, do you mean in relation to the work that I've done or just generally? I have lots of thoughts on paid parental leave. I can, <laughs> just my thoughts? Okay. <laughs> well, I work at the university and we still only offer paid parental leave to pregnant people. So that kind of excludes half the population. So I think paid parental leave, for starters, needs to go across um, men and women. Um, in terms of what the government offers, I'm not really on top of the latest changes. Um, yeah, look, I think if we really do care about families and babies and the most vulnerable people in our life, then par paid parental leave is, is crucial. And any kind of supports to families is Crucial, And I think what you see here and what we talked about this morning in terms of mental health, a lot of that comes down to just families and particularly 
families with young children. I think they are under a lot of pressure, especially those in lower socioeconomic um, groups. And I think there's, there's more and there's a space for governments to do more around that. And it's actually, that touches on another project that I'm working on now. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. I have a question, Janine. Yeah. Out of your, all your research, is there a piece of data that you would put on the top of your wish list? And given that uh, you're relying on, on public data, publicly available data, is there any way to influence the collection of that data? I'd say, given your background in private insurance, mm. it's a lot easier to go to a client mm. and say this is something that you'll find useful in... Mm. The future, but influencing government, mm. um, I'm interested to know how that's done. Yeah, no, that's a really good question too. Uh, it's not publicly available data, unfortunately. So the actual process that I had to go through to get access to this data was extensive. There was lots of ethics forms. Luckily, I again, I was working with the right people, so all of that went very smoothly. Um, so the perinatal data collection and the hospital data set, very hard to get your hands on actually, unless you actually work in the Department of Health or you're a consultant and they're, they're giving you that, that data. Um, I would love to see that data available, particularly for you know, any researchers and consultants as well. I think the more people that are able to do work on that data, the better. Um, was there any data that was missing for me? Um, what I would have said uh, about a year ago is that I wasn't actually able, I don't know if you noticed when I was talking, I wasn't actually able to link my hospital study with my out-of-hospital study. So they were two separate data sets. I would have liked to link the whole thing together so I could see one woman and how she tracked through both the out-of-hospital space and the hospital space. But they've now fixed that, so I can do that now. Uh, any other questions? No? Well, thank you very much, Janine. That was a really, really great presentation. And uh, from a personal point of view, thank you very much for reminding me about my pregnancy management fee, <laughs> which is due next week. And like you said, is no, uh, no small cost. Yeah, that's right. Um, while I've all got your attention, just remind everyone uh, that there's still some competitions that are uh, open and they haven't had a high participation rate, so that increases your chances <laughs> of winning. Uh, one is already closed, but there's still two open. Uh, please also remember to fill out your feedback form, which is available via the app. And please all join me in thanking Janine for her presentation. Thank you. Thank you.